0: seated. Well, it's a, a joy for, for me to gather with all of you this morning as we come together in this, thankfully compared to outside, warm place and just, yeah, spend time together worshiping our God, thanking our God for all the gifts He's given us in this week leading up to Thanksgiving. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we're glad that you're here with us this morning. If you are new or visiting, or if there's anything you, need to, you want to communicate to the church, there's a, a connect card on the seat in front of you. You can fill that out, write any information you want to pass along to us on there, and you can drop those in the boxes on the back wall on your way out. The boxes are also where you can place any tithes or offerings you want to give to what we're doing here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. Just a couple announcements to bring to your attention. One, that on December 4th, on a couple of Sundays following the Sunday school hours so at about eleven forty-five, we will meet in here for our quarterly congregational meeting. And so we would invite you to come be a part of that and hear some updates about what's going on in the life of the church. Um, yeah, so then the next Sunday coming out of Thanksgiving, there is no Sunday school hour, so just be aware of that as well as people will be traveling for um, for Thanksgiving, and so we will gather for, for church on Sunday, but there will not be our typical Sunday school hour. So, as we kind of continue in time of worship together this morning, would you pray with me? Father, as we enter into this week leading up to our Thanksgiving holiday, are reminded of how much we have to be thankful for, how much You have done for us, how every good thing we have is a gift of Your grace to us, that we deserve none of it, we are worthy of none of it, but because You love us, You have given us So many blessings, many of which we take for granted. And I pray that this morning, as we head through this week, that you would in particular bring to mind for us those blessings, those gifts of your grace that we so easily take for granted. Whether it's warm houses or enough food to eat or the very breath that we breathe the health that we have. In other words, you make us keenly aware this week and today of all the ways that you have blessed us, all the ways that you have shown care for us. There is no greater example of that than what you've done for us in Jesus So I pray in particular this morning, God, that we would be amazed once again what a great gift Jesus is. How amazing it is that You would send Your Son to die for us. That our sins could be forgiven. Father, would You... astound us once again at what incredible love you have for us that you would send your son. And out of that love would, would we worship you from overflowing heart. Heart filled with gratitude and a desire to praise you and glorify you. Father, as we continue to sing in a minute, would you work in our heart so that the words we sing are not mere resuscitation, but they are the overflow of our love for You. as we come to Your Word this morning, would we see Your goodness? Would we see Your care for us? Would we see Your power and be amazed and thankful at what a great God You are? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: It's not you. There's quite a lot going on right now. So it's good to have you back. I don't know what to say. I don't require much. so ashamed you redeemed me and I just threw it all away well that's not much of a redemption if it can be lost in a day is it I owe you everything but I just don't think I can do it do what live up to it repay you how could I leave how could I go back to the place I was and I didn't even I didn't even come back on my own they had to come get me I just can't live up to it well that's true (laughs) but you don't have to I just want your heart The Father just wants your heart. Give us that, which you already
0: have. And the rest will come in time.
1: Did you really think that you'd never struggle or sin again? I know how painful that moment was for you. I shouldn't. Someday. But not here. I'm just so sorry. Look up. <laughs> I can
0: We are again so blessed there are many blessings for each of us to count So would we would we see them clearly would we not feel that we earn or deserve our blessing, but that you are worthy of our praise with the way to you bless us. Would our lives be lives of gratitude we pray in Jesus name. Amen you may be seated. <clears throat> you may be aware that it is not currently the, the happiest of times to be a fan of the Packers. <laughs> it's not terribly joyful, but thankfully that's been a fairly uncommon experience, at least in the time that I've been paying attention to, to football. I can remember starting to to be aware of and pay attention to football and becoming a fan of the Packers during the 1992 season, so it's been 30 years since then, and in those 30 years, since 1992, the Packers have the second best combined record in the NFL over those 30 years. They've won more than 63% of their games since 1992. There's a pretty obvious reason for that success. In the third game of the 1992 season, Don Mikowski got hurt and was replaced by Brett Favre. And in that game, Brett Favre led a game-winning drive in the last minute against the Cincinnati Bengals, and from there, it's more or less history. Favre went on to start every game for the Packers for the next 15 seasons. He Led them to many victories. He became one of the best quarterbacks of all time. But any team could, in theory, get lucky once right? and, and have a great quarterback and be good for a stretch. But what had made the Packers unique and allowed them to retain their success for so long was that like, immediately after Favre left, right, they replaced him with Aaron Rodgers. And Rogers has gone on to have arguably an even better career than, than Favre. Right, like lots of lists online would tell you that like Rogers is the most successful successor to a Hall of Fame quarterback of all time. And now that Rogers' career seems to be winding down, it, it remains to be seen if Jordan Love or whoever replaces Rogers can continue that chain of successful succession. Right. But it but it seems unlikely, right? Because it turns out like successful succession plans are are hard. Right? Right. Success in many things is often dependent on the skills of an individual, right? And finding the right person or the right skill to to step in and replace that person and carry things forward is oftentimes nearly impossible. Right? And that's not just true in sport; it's true in many things in life, right? It, true in churches. like The number of megachurches who have been unable to su- sustain their success after like, a popular senior pastor leaves are many. right? Like, the, often those megachurches are built on the personality and success of one pastor. And the succession plan often fails. It's also true in, in business. Right? The Journal of the Wharton School of Business at the University of Penn recently published an article titled, Back to the Future, When the CEO Returns. And this article is all about companies who have rehired former CEOs to be their new CEOs. Probably the most famous example of this is Apple. In 1985, the board of Apple forced Steve Jobs out. They removed him from his position. But then Apple struggled mightily over the next decade. They were losing much of their market share, they are losing their dominance, and so as they neared collapse 11 years later in 1996, Jobs returned to once again become CEO. And through a series of changes and innovations, he, he helped refocus and rebuild Apple to the point that it's now Apple, like it's one of the biggest companies in the world. But, so Apple is like the most famous example of this, but Like, this is a common practice of companies rehire former CEOs to become CEOs again. In fact, it's so common it's got a name. Like, it's called boomerang CEOs. And here's just a a partial list of companies that have had boomerang CEOs. Companies that have rehired their former CEOs in recent years. Partial list. Dell. Enron. Google Twitter, Snapchat, Best Buy, Starbucks, Yahoo, DuPont, Procter & Gamble, JCPenney, Reddit, Bloomberg, Urban Outfitters, and Charles Schwab. All those companies have had CEOs that have left only to have them be rehired by that company. The subtitle of that article up there, which I know you can't read, but it says this. It says, with all the talent streaming through the corporate sector and the increased youth of search firms... Why do many companies rehire former CEOs? And ultimately, right, the answer is that succession planning is it's hard. And this article gives a number of reasons why it's hard. But ultimately, it boils down to the fact that like, replacing a strong leader is incredibly challenging. So it should strike us then when we, when we see it pulled off with remarkable success in the Bible. Now, to be clear, it's not always successful in the Bible. Right? Like, David was a good king. He's replaced by Solomon, who's a sometimes good king. And he's replaced by Rehoboam, who's a terrible king who divides the kingdom in two. Right? But, but this morning, we're going to look at the succession from Elijah to Elisha. And along with them, two other successful successions in the Bible. And it'd be really easy, right, to take this sermon in a very like self-helpy direction. Right? You can call it something like five principles for successful succession planning or something, right? And I'm sure there's a business book out there that's doing that. And you can go find that if you want to. Right? But ultimately, like, I think this passage is not here to teach us how to have successful succession plans. Ultimately, I believe like the reason for this story of the transition from Elijah to Elisha and the other successions. We'll look at it that the record is that God wants us to understand and God wants us to be confident that even though character change, God's plan to redeem all of creation presses ever onward. That it's not actually person dependent. God's plan to redeem all creation. God is the one who's ultimately the CEO, who's in charge, who's directing all things. And so, like character can change, but God's plan will continue. Like as great as, as great as Elijah was, the transition from Elijah to Elisha is not going to stop God's plan from coming to fruition. And so, with that in mind, let's, let's look at this transition from Elijah to Elisha. It's found in Second Kings chapter two. And it says this, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Yes, I know, he replied. So be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. And at this point you may be inclined to wonder, like what is going on here? Like why is Elijah seemingly continually trying to get rid of Elisha to leave Elisha behind? Like why is he? Doing this. It's not entirely clear what Elijah's motivation is. There's kind of two theories that people posit. One is that Elijah is once again struggling to embrace God's plan. He's trying to subvert God's plan of succession to Elisha. The other theory is that Elijah is kind of intentionally testing Elisha's fortitude. That he's, he's kind of Causing and encouraging Elisha to count the cost to make sure that Elisha is really committed to the cause. Whatever the reason ultimately is, what these what these first six verses show us is that Elisha is committed to his calling. He will he will not be shaken off. He will not leave Elijah. He is proving himself a worthy successor to Elijah. He will not be shaken. He will not leave Elijah. The passage continues in verse 7. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken away? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. Right, so a double portion is is the portion of an inheritance in Israel that the firstborn son would have gotten from his father. And now Elisha here, having, having left behind his his family and left behind his material inheritance, is asking for the spiritual equivalent from Elijah, He's treating Elijah as a spiritual father and asking for a spiritual equivalent to the inheritance. And Elijah replies in verse 10, You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and he struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophet from Jericho, who were watching, said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. So they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, are fifty able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down somewhere on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent fifty men who searched for three days but did not find him. When they returned to Elisha, he was, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? There is a lot going on in the passage, a lot that we could say about the passage. There's the fact that Elijah doesn't die, but he gets taken straight up to heaven by a chariots of fire. There's these prophet from Jericho who want to send out men to go look for Elijah, even though it's clear that he was supposed to be taken up to heaven. Even though Elisha knows that they won't find Elijah. There's, there's all kinds of interesting questions that we could, we could ask about this passage. But a lot of those questions, interesting though they may be, I, like, miss the point that this passage is really trying to communicate to us. And that message is that even though Elijah is no longer on the scene... His removal from the earth does not stop God's plan. That's the theme we see over and over again in the Bible. That that characters change, but God's plan presses on. And here we see immediate confirmation that, that God's plan will not be stopped by Elijah's being taken to heaven. As soon as Elijah is taken up to heaven, Elisha takes up Elijah's cloak and he uses it to divide the Jordan River, just like Elijah had done moments earlier. And this all happens right outside of the, the city of, of Jericho, and there's some prophets in Jericho who, who witness this and they immediately understand why it's significant. They understand that Elisha doing the same thing Elijah did means that, as they say, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. They recognize that the torch has officially been passed. That Elisha has quite literally taken up the mantle from Elijah. In fact, that expression take up the mantle comes from this passage. Like in the King James Version, the word that we translated cloak in the NIV is translated mantle. so Elijah took up Elijah, Elisha took up Elijah's mantle, like literally, and that's where that expression comes from. And it's not a coincidence that this takes place at the Jordan River. But the fact that Elisha's very first act after taking up Elijah's mantle is dividing the Jordan, like that's important. And it's intended to call to mind for us another time that the, the Jordan River was parted. In Joshua chapter 3, right, Joshua had just Succeeded Moses as the leader of the Israelites. You may recall that Moses led the Israelites to the cusp of the promised land. But then a judgment against his sin, Moses, was not allowed to enter the promised land. And so he died on the edge of the promised land and Joshua takes over. And now it's time to actually enter into the land. But there's just one problem. The Jordan River is in the way. And Joshua needs to get a whole nation across this river. We're talking possibly is like two and a half million people need to cross the river. It would take forever to ferry that many people back and forth on a boat. Bridges were not as common as they are today, and like. They were made in such a way that they'll likely collapse under that much weight. So, like, how is Joshua going to get these two and a half million people across this river? And in Joshua chapter three, verse seven, God gives Joshua the solution. He says this Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. And a couple of verses later, Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away till the people crossed over opposite Jericho. God God used this miraculous parting of the Jordan River near Jericho to confirm to the people that that he was with Joshua just as much as he was with Moses. That should sound familiar. The same thing that's happened in 2 Kings. The Jordan River is parted near Jericho so that God can confirm that succession has successfully taken place. Two times, God uses a miracle at the Jordan River near Jericho to confirm a succession of his chosen leaders. And we fast forward in history a little further, and we come to Matthew chapter 3. And there's this guy named John who shows up at the Jordan River, and he's he's baptizing people in that river. And this John, he quote-unquote coincidentally happens to wear the same type of clothing that Elijah wore. And part of his message is that after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And then one day, this, this guy, Jesus, shows up. John recognizes him and, as the one who is more powerful than he. And so he, he doesn't want to baptize Jesus because he knows that Jesus is greater than he is, but Jesus insists. And so John baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus was baptized, this time it's not the waters that part, but the the heavens themselves that part. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, the heavens, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Don't miss this, right? Elisha asked for a a double portion of God's Spirit, right? The portion that is due to a firstborn son. And now here, Jesus also receives a a special portion. In the case, like the Spirit of God visibly descending on him like a dove. And then God Himself speaks from heaven and confirms that that Jesus is indeed His beloved Son. Maybe you kind of wonder, so like this Jordan River, like where in the Jordan River did this happen? But according to John chapter 1, John was baptizing in a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan, which was just across the Jordan River from Jericho. Right across from Jericho is Bethany beyond the Jordan. That's where John was baptizing just outside of Jericho. So we have, we have three instances here. We're at the Jordan River just outside of Jericho. God shows up to make it abundantly clear that his succession plan is underway. Moses to Joshua, Elijah to Elisha, and now John to Jesus. God working through succession. If all that wasn't clear enough, just consider for a moment the name of all three of the successors. We have Joshua, and his name means, Yahweh is my salvation. We have Elisha, whose name means, God is my salvation. And we have Jesus, right? And Jesus is just a Greek form of Joshua. So, his name too means Yahweh of my salvation. Their names all mean the same thing. We have these three events that combined, that they're meant to be linked in our minds. And they combine, they show us that while characters may change, God's purposes are always that way. God is always bringing about His good purposes. That it's not dependent on any one person along the way. It wasn't dependent on Moses, it wasn't dependent on Elijah wasn't dependent on John. God is at work to bring about his good purposes. But that raises an important question. That question is, like, what exactly are God's purposes? We get a taste of them in, in the next couple of verses in 2 Kings. Continuing in verse 19, we read this. The people of the city, that is, Jericho, said to Elisha, look, Our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see. But the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day according to the word of the word Elijah had spoken. So Jericho, in, in Elisha's time, has a problem. That the water in their well is bad, and the land then is unproductive. Which is interesting, because when, when Joshua came to the city, it was a, a vibrant and thriving city. But then Joshua, according to God's command, destroyed it. As he's leading the Israelites into the promised land, he wipes it out. And after he destroys it, he says, Joshua says, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay a foundation. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up his gates. And then in 1 Kings 16, we read, In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid a foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, Ab- Abiram, and set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. So the Jericho in Elisha's day is it's a cursed city. It, it exists because God's commands have been disregarded. But then Elisha shows up, and he he performs a miracle that fixes the water and makes the land productive again. This this, this story then is a, it's a beautiful picture of the purpose of miracles in the Bible. Miracles are redemptive; they are they are meant to restore to pristine condition that which was cursed or was wrong. And because they restore things to wholeness, they, they point us forward and cause us to anticipate the new heavens and the new earth. This act of, of healing the water at Jericho. It's a, it's a way of removing the curse from Jericho. And it gives us a foretaste of the restoration of paradise and the removal of the curse which creation, all of creation is subjected to by sin. It's not just people that God is in the process of redeeming. God is redeeming creation itself. In Romans 8, we read, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. God is in the process of redeeming the world and people for Himself. And this story, the picture that, like, even though the character changed, God's redemptive work continues. We see another example of this near Jericho in the life of Jesus. Thanks, in no small part to Elisha's miracle here, right? Jericho by Jesus' day had once again become a thriving and wealthy city. Herod the Great had even built his winter palace in Jericho because it had nice weather and it was a beautiful city. But that wealth also attracted the homeless and the needy and outcast beggars. So, starting in verse 35 of Luke 18, Jesus encountered one of those beggars. And we read this As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told them to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stopped and he ordered the man brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see," he replied. Jesus said to him, "Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you." Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. So again, here we we see the redemptive purpose of of miracles. Right, that miracles restore to perfect condition. Those things that will once been broken and ruined. And they serve ultimately to remind us that, that God is at work to one day do that for all of creation. All the miracles in the Bible. They ultimately take place to ensure us that Revelation 21 is coming. In Revelation 21, John gets a vision of the end of history, with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God is making everything new. He's setting all things right. He is Undoing all the sin rock curse that we face. He's, he's redeeming a people for himself and he's redeeming all creation. It doesn't matter who he has working for him, God is in the process of doing it. He's creating this beautiful new creation and that work will one day come to fruition. But as beautiful as that, that work is, not everyone is on board. God still has his critics and his mockers, and we see this at the end of Second Kings. We read this. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boy came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldi. He turned around. Looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled forty-two of the boys. And he went on to Mount Caramel and from there returned to Samaria. And at first glance, that seems harsh. Like, like some, like some boys making fun of an older guy for being bald? That's thought I takes like to get a bear sent after you, like my dad should have sent bears bear after me a long time ago. Right? Like make fun of him for me a ball all the time. But but to think that way I think kind of oversimplifies what's going on here. Right? Because Elisha is a prophet. And as a prophet he, he represents God on earth. Right? So to mock Elisha is ultimately to mock God. And I think, like, what this story shows us is that like, God's redemptive work will continue even in the face of mocking. Like, this is a, this passage is a clear example of Galatians six in action. In Galatians six, we read, "Don't be deceived; God cannot be mocked. A man will reap a man reaps what he sows." And these boys, like. It's, as harsh as that may seem, reaped what they sowed by mocking God. This passage calls to mind a, another time that that God was mocked in the Bible, but with radically different outcomes. In Matthew twenty-seven, we see Jesus brought before the authorities, and we read this. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. It is as harsh as that, that story of the boys being mauled seems, right? the truly astounding thing is that we all don't receive the immediate consequences from our sin the way the boys did there. Like we all deserve. For all our sin, immediately the way they got it there. And the reason we don't is that Jesus endured mocking. Jesus endured beating and slander, and He went to the cross on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sin. But the astounding thing is not that there was punishment for mocking God's prophet. But that God himself took on flesh and was mocked for us. That's the astounding thing. All our sin deserved to be punished. Just like the sin of little boys who mocked Elisha. And it's only because Jesus endured mocking and went to the cross that we have any hope of escaping punishment. And like the great irony, right, is that it was the very act of God being mocked that allowed God's redemptive purposes to move forward. But at the guard mocked Jesus that God's purposes were actually coming to fruition. God's redemptive purposes press forward, even in the face of mocking. But if you're here and if you you've never trusted Jesus, you've disregarded him, or you've not thought much about him. Maybe you've Mentally belittled Him. There's coming a day when your mocking of God will warrant judgment and punishment. But Jesus was mocked and beaten and slandered and ultimately crucified on the cross to forgive you all the times that you mocked God, all the times you sinned. He offers that for anyone who believes in Him, who trusts in Him, their sins of mocking God and all their other sins can be forgiven. If you've never believed in Jesus, then I'd urge you to do that. If you have questions about what that means or want to talk more about that, I'd be more than happy to talk to you. And for those of us here who have trusted Jesus, right, that this passage taken all together should should think be freeing and it should be encouraging. Okay, for a couple of reasons. One, like this passage tells us that you aren't that important. Like right, which may not seem all that encouraging at first. Okay, and like to be clear, like you are important to God. God loves you, God cares for you more than you can imagine. What I mean is like, you're not important in the, in the sense that like God doesn't ultimately need you. And that should be freeing. Like, like Moses seemed super important, right? And yet God had him die outside the promised land and continued right on with Elisha, with Joshua. Elijah seemed super important, and God took him away, and Elisha took up the mantle. John was the first prophet Israel had had in 400 years. That seems really important. And he was beheaded. God's work doesn't depend on any one of us. God's purposes will press onward because he is God. And yet, he, he invites us to be a part of what he is doing. He invites them to be a, a part of his kingdom and advancing throughout the world. He he lets them be a part of what he's doing. Instead of an obligation, we should see that as a gift. That I means the pressure is it's off. Like you don't have to do everything precisely the right way. And God is able to work through your failures and through your mistakes and through your shortcomings. God will work through all of it to bring up what His purposes. I don't know about you, but I find that freeing. I find that encouraging that it doesn't depend on me. Our call is not to do everything precisely the right way, but to, to be faithful. and To let God work through us in whatever way He pleases. Another reason the passage would be encouraging is that No matter what's going on in the world around us, no matter how maligned God may seem in our culture, His purpose will press ever onward. Even when it seems like our world is is mocking God, even when it seems like everything is stacked against Him, God's purposes will prevail. Things were truly bleak in the days of Elisha. Israel was in open rebellion and God. They were worshiping false gods. There were 7,000 righteous left out of however many million. And God still worked in the midst of those circumstances to bring about His good purposes. God's plan pressed on, even in the midst of that bleakness. Like no matter how dark, no matter how daunting things may seem, no matter how opposed to God the world may seem, no matter how many trials and tribulations you're going through, right? Revelation 21 is coming. God will make all things new. God is in the process now of making all things new. So let's Path should encourage us to hold on to that promise that God is at work no matter how dark and bleak things may seem. Let's pray. Father, we thankful that. you work to bring about your good purposes despite our sin, despite our failure, despite our shortcomings. That even as the people you use change throughout time, that nothing stands in the way of you doing what you deem best. Thank you that you've invited us to be a part of what you're doing on this earth. I pray that we would be faithful to the call you've laid on us, and I pray that we would be encouraged in knowing that we can you can work even in our failures and in our shortcomings and in our imperfections. And God, as we we walk through hard times, as we walk through difficult seasons, as we see all the effects of sin in our life and the lives of those around us, We're tempted to give in to despair. Would you remind us and assure us that the words of Revelation 21 are true, that you are in the process of making all things new, that there is coming a day when there will be no more sin or pain or death or mourning. When you will set all things right, you will make all things new. We will rejoice forever around your throne. But until that day comes, would we be faithful, doing the work you've called us to do, trusting you to do the work in our lives? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you go, would you go confident that God is in the process of making all things new to bring about his good purposes? You are dismissed.